A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode has been generously sponsored anonymously as a schus for Yeshua's, for Klal Yisrael in general, which is so needed today. Um, just a few announcements before we get to today's topic about Menachem Begin. Um, the coming, we're going to have a, a, a special episode in honor of Tisha B'Av. Um, it's going to hopefully be a very appropriate uh, episode. I'm going to delve into the story of the Kishinev pogrom and its uh, aftermath and the impact that it had on Jewish life. Um, so if you, the sponsorship is still available for the special Tisha B'Av episode, which has a very uh, far reach beyond, well beyond uh, uh, the regular numbers, which regular numbers are pretty respectable themselves of listens. And if you want to have uh, something uh, beyond that, then you can definitely might be interested in having the uh, sponsorship for the Tisha B'Av episode. Um, this episode on uh, Menachem Begin, and we're going to speak a little bit about the Irgun also, there's going to be several parts. Um, I don't think, you know, it's impossible to cover the life and story of Menachem Begin and his political career, and especially once you get into a whole Irgun, the Eitzel uh, story. Uh, it's going to have to be a few parts, so if you want to sponsor any of the future parts of this a story that's also available if you'd like. Uh, we recently had a, a great, great episode on forgotten Hasidic dynasties and got a lot of feedback on it. Got lots of feedback with suggestions of different forgotten dynasties, which can be profiled. There's many, many, many of them. And uh, definitely, if you want to sponsor one of those, you can be in touch with me as well. There were some corrections about Dumbrava and Zabultov, which I'm not going to get into, or, you know, pretty minor, um, and from some very knowledgeable listeners. It's amazing some of the quality uh, listeners that we have out there, Jewish History Soundbites, there's so much to add, so much to say. One one listener submitted that they're forgotten but not gone. Others said they're gone and forgotten. Some said that the way I said it was good, gone but not forgotten. There was a, all kinds of insights. But then there was a very insightful email as follows. I'm just going to read read from it directly. Definitely an interesting topic. However, I'm not sure that I agree with you fully as to what is a forgotten Hasidus. 
I may be nitpicking and arguing over semantics, but if a branch of Hasidus no longer exists, but the remaining Hasidim find a familiar and comfortable home in another branch, is the original branch now forgotten? Didn't all the remaining Zabotov Hasidim feel truly at home in Vizhnitz? And then he brings, I could read through the whole thing, he brings other examples from other um, small Hasidic groups that disappeared and were decimated and later um, found a new home after the war in a similar and familiar cultural and Hasidic background in another dynasty that was resuscitated and rebuilt uh, after the war. And then he continues, To use a ridiculous extreme example, is Sigit lost or is Satmer now Sigit? If anything, truly lost Hasidism would be examples that you mentioned, like Alexander and Radomsk. They're surely not forgotten, but they really no longer exist. There are no branches that any remaining Hasidim would feel at home in. Um, so that's a very, very valid point. And, uh, you know, the, the answer is is that if we're, you know, giving an analysis of, of uh, a sociological analysis of, of contemporary Jewish life, then, then of course, then most... Uh, uh, most people have found a new home. Most people have found places to to be uh, in, in the in a post-war. Um, but that wasn't the point. The point was that this was the dynasty, you know, that that no longer goes by that name, no longer has that, uh, no longer exists as their own court. Um, is a story, is a historical anecdote, is a piece of history, a piece of Jewish history, and and therefore their story. You know, is going to be told in Jewish history sound bites. In other words, as a historical curiosity, they're gone but not forgotten. Um, where, and if the fact is that in contemporary Jewish life they found a new home, and that's uh, wonderful news. Um, so, getting back to today's topic, Menachem Begin, um, very, very uh, uh, popular and by many, and then very, um, you know, a figure that there's a lot of strong feelings about him on both sides. Uh, you know, very beloved and some to some, and very uh, complex legacy uh, to others. Uh, in, i just say that one of my first exposures to, to uh, Menachem Begin in Israel, and I came here, he had already passed away uh, when I moved here, but when we drove into Yerushalayim for the first time, so we saw these big signs that said, Begin North, or Begin South, and we thought that that was very polite to write on the signs, a very interesting way of writing it, that you begin uh, on the North on this, uh, on this side, and you can begin it on the South, and it took me a while to realize that the newly made um, road, beautiful road that traverses the entire city of Yerushalayim, is named after Menachem Begin, and it wasn't Begin, it was uh, Menachem Begin. So that was just uh, giving a monument to his memory by, you know, naming the main road, the main highway through Yerushalayim after the uh, somewhat recently deceased uh, uh, Prime Minister. Um, so when we go to speak about him and his life, so the, there's an excellent biography. I don't, know, I don't know if it's the only one, it definitely is the best one, and... Uh, a fantastic job, Avi Shilon, and it has been, he wrote it quite a bit of time ago, and I think shortly after he wrote it, it was translated into English, so it's on the market for, I don't know, 15, 20 years already. Excellent book. Um, he was a very, Begin was a very complex character, and the book does a great job of bringing out all sides, so if you want to 
read more about Menachem Begin in a good book. So I think Avi Shalom's book, uh, biography of Menachem Begin, is I think the best out there, unless uh, anyone wants to suggest something else. Um, and when we go to, interesting, when we go to, uh, on the trips, uh, we go to Belarus. So some groups would like to go to Brisk, uh, with all the history that's associated with Brisk, the Beis Halevi and Reb Chaim Brisker. Now there's nothing, unfortunately, there's nothing there to see in the city. Very tragic. There's, you go to the Beis, what was the Beis Akvaris, it's like a parking lot. And we go to the spot where the Beis Halevi is buried. And, uh, and, um, and, and, and you go to the spot where the, where the shul once was, where the house of Reb Chaim Brisker once was, but nothing's there. Where the yeshiva of the Imre Meisha, or Meisha Sokolovsky was, but there's literally nothing to see. Um, there's, it's one of the only cities like that. Almost every place we go to has a shul, has a this, has a that. The only thing that's actually really Jewish that's there to see, ironically, in a place like Brisk, where you have all the you know, Soloveitchik history and all that, is a statue of Menachem Begin. He grew up in Warsaw, excuse me, in, in Brisk, and he went to university in Warsaw. But he, he grew up in Brisk, and uh, since he's the only one who ever, in the history of the town of Brisk, that won a Nobel Prize, he won the Nobel Peace Prize, in 1979 or 1980, uh, because of the peace treaty with Egypt, him and Sadat shared the peace prize. Um, so the the pride of the town, that one of the uh, sons of the town won the Nobel Prize. So there's a big statue of Menachem Begin uh, near where his house was, presumably. So when we go with the groups, after all talking about the Beis Halevi and Reb Chaim Brisker, the one Jewish thing we bring them to is the statue of Menachem Begin. There's also in Warsaw University, where he went to university for the same thing. There's a plaque uh, for Menachem Begin. He's one of the only alma ma- alumni of uh, of uh, of, uh, of um, Warsaw University who won a Nobel Prize. So there's a you know they're very proud of the fact that an uh, alumnus of the university won a Nobel Prize. There's a plaque to him there as well. You know, some people are crazy over him. You know, and they, you know one of his uh, close to, close. Uh, Confidants, Yehuda Avner, wrote a book about, called The Prime Ministers, which is about a bunch of prime ministers, but you can definitely see his bias there, his favorite prime minister there is Begin. Many have read the book. It's, uh, you know, Menachem Begin is considered Heimish in many ways, because when he visited the, uh, the great uh, Torah leaders of the United States in the house of Rabbi Meisha Feinstein when he was prime minister, see, he spoke to the G'dayle Yisrael in Yiddish, uh, which uh, Golda Meir and other and other uh, Israeli leaders refused to do. Um, so he, he was someone who was more accommodating to religion. He was more Heimish. He's buried on Harazesim, not on Har Herzl. The reason he's buried on Harazesim has nothing to do with tradition. It has to do with the fact that he wanted to be buried near the Irgun martyrs who uh, who uh, who um, blew themselves up when they were sentenced to death in a British uh, prison. Uh, Moshe Barazani and Mayor Feinstein wanted to be buried near there. He bought the plot. But either way, the fact that he's buried in Harazesim and he's buried in a talis, not in an Israeli flag, so it kind of made him uh, different. He was traditional. Actually, in his personal life, he was somewhat traditional. He was definitely not anti-religious. Um, he provided much more funding for the uh, religious schools and the yeshivas in Israel once he became prime minister. And for that and other reasons, the religious people love him. They, they, many of them, all of them, in the United States, in Israel, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of warm feelings towards the legacy of Menachem Begin. So, 
it's good to know a little bit about him and speak, you know, about his who he was and his person and his accomplishments, his career, and his setbacks, his challenges. In reality, he was a very, very complex personality, a very complex legacy. He had his ups and downs. He had his accomplishments and failures. There's there's Menachem Begin as a public leader, which he was for the majority of his life, and then there was him as a human being, um, and then it gets even more complex because he. He, uh, he he had you know he went through a lot in his own life and he very likely just from his mannerisms and his behaviors uh, throughout his life especially in his later years it seems that he suffered from some sort of unclear what because he never got it assessed or diagnosed but something along the lines of bipolar like a manic depressive type of thing um, it's merely speculation because like I said he was never assessed or diagnosed but there was definitely something there. And uh, and uh, you know made his his personality more complex. Um, it's definitely connected. This whole story is connected to the general atmosphere of the nine days um, because he was. If there's one Israeli politician that for his entire life lived in the shadow of the Holocaust and in many of his political decisions, both as leader of the underground and as a prime minister and as leader of the opposition for the three decades. Um, many of those, many of his decisions were impacted by um, by the atrocities that had taken place in, to the Jewish people in the Holocaust, including to members of his own family and his own harrowing escape from that. Um, so he he lived in that shadow and the whole experience of his growing up in Poland and then escaping and you know losing his family uh, definitely had a very cast a long long shadow over Menachem's, Menachem Begin's life and career. He, his, his most compelling talent uh, throughout his life and what made him so successful probably was his number one um, reason for success was that he was a tremendous orator. He was a dramatist. He had a, a flair for theatrics and very charismatic, a fantastic speaker. He, you know, the way he spoke, the way he projected, the way he, he used his hands and clenched his fists and and raised his voice and pauses, and he was known as a, as a very very successful uh, orator. Um, so that's that's just a general picture. If there's if we examine his life and career, we can probably in a you know in an artificial way divide it into five parts. There's his growing up in Brisk, um, and then later becoming the leader of Beitar. Um, and uh, in, in, in Poland, and then the outbreak of the war, and being arrested by the Soviets, and being sent to Siberia, and then joining the Polish army, and then going arriving in Palestine, that would, would constitute part one of his life and career. The second part would be him as part of the Irgun, the Etzel, the Irgun Svailuomi, the national um, military uh, organization. And um, the, it was an underground um, organization, whatever you want to call it, to fight against the British and, uh, and others to get them uh, out of Palestine. And, um, and he was the head. He was the head of the Irgun. And so that was the second part of his career. Then with the founding of the State of Israel and therefore the founding of the Israeli army and the Irgun is ultimately disbanded. And he becomes a politician. He enters the Knesset, the head of the Chirut uh, party, um, and uh, the opposition. He spends th- three decades, 30 years in the opposition in the Knesset, and that's a third stage of his life. The fourth stage is when he, the Mahapach, the, uh, 
the uh, upheaval, the revolt, the whatever it's called, the, the overthrowing the uh, rule of the Mapai, and uh, when the Cheirut, which eventually comes the Likud, um, Begin finally becomes the prime minister. They win the elections in 1977, a tremendous change in, uh, in Israeli politics and Israeli political history. And th- that begins the third stage of his life and career. When he's in power, he wins the elections twice, and he resigns uh, in the middle of his second term uh, because of the disastrous effects of the Lebanon War, which hopefully we'll get to. And then the, begins the fifth and probably the strangest and most hardest to understand until today. We don't exactly understand because he never revealed it. He never, he, never said, he never said why. But he became a recluse. He secluded himself after he resigned from the Knesset, from being a prime minister. He literally cut himself off, uh, kind of like the Kutzker almost, <laughs> he, he shut himself off completely from society, wouldn't talk to anyone, wouldn't, uh, you know, almost uh, never revealed himself, never till the last few months of his life where he kind of, you know, gave a few interviews and kind of a little bit came back to himself. But for about eight, nine years, he was completely secluded. He was totally cut off from from society. Now, each and every one of these stages is a fascinating story, both in Menachem Begin's life and his leadership and his career, and also in that he was operating on the stage of history. And it was uh, very, very historic times, the Irgun, is a you know tremendous story and the uh, early years of the state of Israel when he was in opposition and later um, what he did as prime minister and uh, the, you know the Camp David Accords the peace with Egypt and the the uh, you know changing the economy which which ultimately led from so- socialist economy to capitalist economy which had some bumps along the way the hyperinflation of the 1980s and the collapse of the Israeli economy and then um, the Lebanon War which ended up had good intentions at the beginning, but it ended up was one of the worst disasters in uh, in Israeli history. It ended up being like a quagmire, the Israel's Vietnam, uh, which is uh, uh, also an important uh, part of history. And then, uh, and then his in his last years, when he uh, becomes uh, more secluded. In fact, during his last months of his life, he was released from Ichalov Hospital after a successful hip surgery. So he seemed to be in a better mood, and it was the first time that he was answering uh, questions. Uh, on live uh, TV to reporters who were, were watching him come out of the hospital. And um, so first he forgot to hold on to the railing on his left side, and the doctor tells him on live TV, the doctor tells him, hold on to the railing on the left. And he said, well, I try to never lean to the left. Um, so people saw that his sense of humor came back. And, and then uh, Yaakov Achimer, who still is uh, a legendary uh, figure in, in the Israeli media. And, then, you know, of course, the son of Abba Achimer, Brit Birionim, you know, arrested because of the Lazarov murder in 1930, a whole story also. But, um, but uh, Yaakov Achimer asks him, why were you secluded the last several years? Why did you owe the Israeli people an answer? And he said, uh, personal reasons. Uh, and he brushed it off and walked away. In other words, he never, he never revealed why he did it. Um, so it's somewhat of a mystery till today. It's presumably... Um, you know, so he, his, he was de- depressed and his legacy was was uh, in question because of the Lebanon War and other things. So hopefully we'll get to that as well. But let's start from uh, the beginning of the Begin story. He's growing up in Brisk and um, his father, a fellow by the name of Zev Dov uh, Begin, uh, was uh, an interesting person. He was the secretary of the Brisk uh, Jewish community. He knew several languages. He was very proficient. He was 
and originally he was just successful in business and then later lost his money. Um, so they had their ups and downs in the family economy. He was a very dominant father, very strict, um, very strong about his children's education. He, um, he was a traditional man, but a strong Zionist, uh, which in Brisk, he was the Zionist pioneer. And he worked on making Zionism a part of the Brisk Jewish community. And that put him at odds with the rabbi of Brisk, Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, Reb Chaim Brisker, who was anti-Zionist, and to say the least. And um, not, in fact, Zev Dov uh, Begin was, um, was a student of Reb Chaim Brisker from his earlier years. And yet uh, he was very confident and very strong about his opinions about Zionism and even named one of his sons Herzl after Herzl had passed away. In fact, he tried um, making a memorial service uh, for Herzl in the Great Synagogue of Brisk. And Reb Chaim Brisker heard that he was going to do it, so he had the Great Synagogue locked. And Zevdov Begin, in defiance of the rabbi, took the, an axe and, and went and, and sliced off the lock, hacked the lock off to be able to hold the memorial service to Herzl in the Great Synagogue. So, on, on, in one hand, the Begin is raised in a very traditional home, um, where he went to shul every Shabbos, and and uh, you know they kept something of some sort of kosher in the home, and uh, and uh, and you know, they, uh, he had a bar mitzvah, he put on tefillin. Some, some say he even continued putting on tefillin even afterwards. Um, there, was, there, was, there was some level of religious uh, life, uh, you know, not clear how much. Um, you know, his father, you know, they did a Shabbos meal every Friday night where there's, you know, his mother lit candles and his father said Kiddush, which Begin continued for the rest of his life. He would say Kiddush every Friday night and he would, uh, he would officially, uh, you know, tone down his business that he would be doing on Shabbos as well. So that's interesting, uh, too. He kept, you know, a very strong connection to Jewish tradition. I don't know if Jewish religion, but Jewish tradition. At the same time, it was a very Zionistic home. And, uh, and his father educated his children in Zionism. And his father uh, oversaw the, uh, the opening of the first Shomer Hatzair branch in Brisk, which his children joined. So ironically, the first Zionist organization that Menachem Begin joined as a young teenager was Shomer Hatzair, the left, leftist socialist Shomer Hatzair. Afterwards, when they became too socialist for his father's taste, and they put socialist values over Zionist values, so then uh, he told his kids to leave. And they joined Beitar, which was just starting then. Beitar was, was Brit Yosef Trumpeldor, the uh, revisionist Zionist. So it was the Jabotinsky, uh, Zev Jabotinsky, who became uh, um, Begin's mentor and leader, even though he had sharp disagreements with him about many issues. But uh, this, uh, so he, he joins Beitar, and he very soon becomes the national leader of Beitar. He, very quick rise. At the age of 22, he was already. Uh, debating, publicly debating uh, Jabotinsky at a national Beitar convention um, and, and disagreeing with him. And people saw his rhetoric and his debating style and his, his, his speech uh, gifts, his, speak, his speaking gifts. So he, um, he rose to become a regional leader, then a national leader. He was in Czechoslovakia for a couple of years as the Beitar leader, but then came back to uh, Poland. He... Um, Unique for his time, he after his he had a, he went to a local cheder in Brisk for a couple of years, and then he went to the Tachkamoni school, the Zionist school in Brisk, uh, for another several years, and then he went to a gymnasium, went to Polish uh, a Polish high school, and he 
uh, he graduated, and from there he went to Warsaw University, which was very unique for the time, especially um, with his family's finances not great. Uh, the fact that he was able to go to Warsaw University is quite unique. And then he takes law, and he graduates with a full law degree by the age of 22. So he was very successful. <coughs> excuse me, it wasn't, <coughs> excuse me, well, it wasn't so easy for Jews in the atmosphere of the Poland at the time. He himself very often experienced Polish anti-Semitism. Um, he, had, he had a small build, he was short, he was skinny, he had big uh, 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 vision problems, so he always wore thick glasses, so he was easy to poke fun at, uh, you know, he wasn't athletic, he didn't play sports, uh, so people uh, poked f- uh, fun, and he was sometimes beaten up um, by Polish uh, students, and this, uh, you know, gave him the experience of what it means um, to live as a Jew in Poland and to experience the uh, local anti-Semitism. So he graduates as a lawyer and at the same time as a rising leader in Beitar. Oh, interesting, because of his time in a Polish gymnasium and then in Warsaw University, and he was also a, 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 um, a, a big reader. Like I said, he wasn't athletic, he wasn't a big ball player, but he read and he gobbled up books. He, he, he didn't stop reading. He loved reading his whole life. Uh, he re- books and newspapers and law and philosophy and history and, and everything. So he was very much influenced by Polish nationalism. So on one hand, he, he experienced Polish anti-Semitism. On the other hand, it was Polish nationalism. And his father uh, admired German culture. His father loved Germans, loved uh, loved Germans and German culture. He despised, his father, Zevdov, despised Poles and Polish culture. He somewhat admired the Russians, which he grew up, it was still the Russian Empire and Russian culture. And then, uh, and then, uh, and, but he admired Germans uh, much more than, uh, than Poles. And the tragedy of it all, which uh, Begin would sometimes point out, him or his sister or both, I don't remember, was that um, the ones who he admired most were, the, were his murderers. And, you know, Begin, both his parents and his brother Herzl were killed by the Nazis in Brisk uh, after the invasion. Um, so, but, but, uh, but, but, but Begin himself was influenced by Polish nationalism. And he, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the many ideas that were later incorporated into the Irgun um, and into Begin's political philosophy, he got from the extreme Polish nationalism that he encountered in the, the extreme right-wing, anti-Semitic, essentially, Polish nationalism. Uh, the idea that in, before World War I, there were the, these paramilitary groups that Pilsudski and, and, uh, and others had organized. And it was called the, it was called the Polish national, the Polish, uh, the Polish, um, uh, Polish military organization, so Irgun Svailumi is the national military organization. So it's almost the same title. Um, the idea that there should be a central, strong nationalist leader like Pilsudski was something that uh, resonated strongly with uh, Begin, how he saw Zabotinsky, and then later how he wanted to see himself. Um, the idea that that um, that there should be uh, paramilitary groups. Um, formed before independence to to uh, to be rabble rousers, which existed in Poland in the last years of the Tsarist Russian Empire, uh, Polish nationalists. So that became also the Irgun, the idea that you expand your your nationalist borders by military force, 
which of course was Poland in the interwar period, you know, taking the Vilna district from from uh, from Lithuania and then and fighting with the, the Soviets uh, for eastern Poland and then later on with Czechoslovakia. Um, so that was an idea that was incorporated into the vision of uh, of the Irgun and Begin as well, um, and many others. That whole the whole idea of romantic and even messianic nationalism, which uh, Begin absorbed from Mickiewicz and other Polish poets, he would actually quote these poets when he would give speeches yeah, for Beitar and even later on uh, when he was in Palestine. So it's very interesting how Polish nationalism influenced the Jewish nationalism like that uh, um, in, 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 in that way. Um, but his legal background, because he was a lawyer, gave him the opportunity to have this, you know, a certain type of emotional nationalism, which was emotional, like I said, a romantic nationalism, grounded in a legal framework. So it was this dialectic that he was, that he was in one hand, you know, filled with pathos and passion. On the other hand, the justification for the nationalism was always uh, very clearly articulated by Begin uh, with a legal framework, which gave him that much more power and and uh, and 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 made much more sense uh, when when he when he when he spoke. It wasn't just uh, abstract. It was very very uh, grounded in reality. Um, See, so he's at the leadership of Betari. Has this uh, um, interesting relationship with Jabotinsky, which is on and off. And he he's building up the the uh, you know he's very emphasis uh, emphasis on ceremonial values. Uh, he wants Betar officers to stand at attention and to have militaristic parades and and uh, and um, you know all those things like that. Um, he has parades in Warsaw with with you know with the with Betar wearing uniforms and even carrying firearms. It's very important that Betar has that value system. Um, and he himself, even though he's head of this national organization, he keeps what would be a dominant feature of his uh, his his lifestyle throughout his life was his simplicity, frugality. He he you know he didn't try to make money off of anything. Um, he he would when he would go around the country giving speeches and talking about Zionism and Beitar, he would very often sleep on park benches. He wouldn't sleep by strangers without paying them, even though that was a commonly accepted practice at the time. And he very often did not have the money to pay anyone uh, to pay for accommodations. He would sleep on a park bench. He would skip meals. He was very very idealistic. Very, very heavily engaged in politics, and uh, and materialism meant nothing to him, and and uh, you know his, his to, to you know no sense of entitlement. Also, but the complex personality and leadership was already coming to the fore at this point. But then he took a break uh, when he got married. He married a, um, a young lady in Galicia named Eliza Arnold, who came from wealthy family, also a Zionistic family. And then shortly afterwards, the war breaks out, and he leaves. Um, Warsaw, he escapes from Warsaw several, just a couple of weeks after the war breaks out in September 1939 and he flees to Lvov and then to Vilna. That was the head of Betar escaping and, and leaving Vilna. So there was some criticism within the Betar movement that he was the captain of the ship and had abandoned. And that was an element of guilt that he lived with for a long time and it would also accompany him on his political career and his career as a leader of the Irgun. So again, so this uh, decisive move in, in World War II, which seemed to, you know, a very natural and, and, and understandable move, justify that he and his wife uh, ran for their lives during the war, 
from Beitar to Vilna uh, because of the first the criticism from within the movement and then uh, the guilt that he sustained, and this is something you would actually talk about, it's not something that we're speculating, um, that, that would, would, would accompany him and would have an impact later on on his life and career. So he's in Vilna, and then there's, of course, the death of Jabotinsky in the summer of 1940, um, and uh, he's nervous also about his family back in Brisk, and like I said, his father, his beloved father, whose father was, was like, you know, he considered the, the one who built him and inspired him, and his father... You know, stood up for being a Jew, and he has all you know, have all kinds of stories with his father that he would repeat for the rest of his life about how he proudly stood up as a Jew and inculcated them with that pride and uh, educated them with that. Um, so his his parents and his brother were killed by the Nazis on the banks of the uh, river in Brisk, and um, and he uh, and he's you know first in in this happened of course later when the Nazis invaded they, they were killed. But um, but he you know he's nervous about his family's welfare, and then the Soviets take over Lithuania, and because he was involved in as the head of the Beit, head of Beitar, he was involved in public Zionist activity and the allocation of certificates to leave and get to Palestine, the ones that were allocated to to the revisionist Zionists. Um, so he he was wanted by the Soviets. He hides from the NKVD in a small little village outside Vilna, and they find him there, and he's arrested. And he's interrogated by the NPD. He's kept in the, in the cell, and he's interrogated. He actually enjoyed the interrogations because he got to debate with them about communism and Zionism, and it gave him like in the, the he wrote a book about his arrest by the Soviet White Knights or something like that. He wrote two books about. It. He never finished his memoirs. He wrote two books: one called The Revolt, about his version of the story of the Irgun, and another book called White Knights, I think, or White Knight about his experience with the Soviets and his arrest and exile to Siberia. And what's fascinating is that when the KGB archives were open to researchers and his file was found, the protocols of his interrogations, it, was, it almost matched. It matched, it was almost no discrepancies from what he wrote in his memoir to what the protocols of the NKVD said about the interrogation. So it was an amazing memory, and he definitely didn't try to change anything, so it was accurate. Um, so he, um, but he, uh, he would speak to his interrogators as if, he was, as if he was speaking to an audience of thousands at a Beitar convention in pre-war Poland. He, he, would, he, he enjoyed the opportunity to express his, his views. But um, his professing his innocence didn't help him, and he's sentenced to eight years of slave labor in Siberia. And he is deported from Vilna to Siberia in early June 1941, which is fascinating. He probably thought that it was the worst thing that could happen to him, that now he's being deported to Siberia. Literally a couple of weeks later is June 22, 1941, the, uh, the, um, the Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union by the Nazis, and that ultimately saves his life, the fact that he's by that time in, in Siberia. So... Um, so the he he uh, ends up there and supposed to be there for eight years, but he's released shortly afterwards because the uh, Vladislav Sikorsky, the prime minister of the Polish government in exile in London, reaches an agreement with the Soviet Union, recognition of the Polish government in exile. At that time, it collapsed later, and part of the agreement was to release all Polish citizens in. Siberian captivity and to organize them into brigades to join up with the Allied forces, ostensibly with the Red Army. They didn't. They joined up with the British Army and they, they left the Soviet Union and joined the British Army. But close to 70,000 Poles were released 
and they formed General Anders' army, Vladislav Anders' army in the Soviet Union. They leave the Soviet Union through Iran, and then down to Palestine, and then to Egypt, where they join up with the British army, and they uh, join in the invasion of Sicily, and then many Poles uh, fought bravely, actually, in the Battle of Monte Cassino later on in the war. So that's General Anders' army. So many Jews left with that also. In fact, many Jews tried smuggling their families through also, because there's an opportunity to leave the Soviet Union. Uh, famous Yalde Tehran. How do these children get to Iran, get to Tehran? They got there through this, through General Anders' army leaving the Soviet Union. So they brought out orphans and families and wives and children and and the, you know, they got them to Iran, they got them out of the Soviet Union, and they tried to get them to Israel. So the soldiers themselves, including thousands of Jewish soldiers, ended up in Palestine for a period of time with the Polish army. And many of them defected and deserted uh, because they wanted to stay in Palestine. This, of course, would give another reason for the, um, for the Poles to, you know, Poles, anti-Semitic, I don't know, whatever, but uh, to call, call the Jews deserters, and they, they left the Polish army to stay in Palestine while the Poles went to fight uh, with the British in Monte Cassino and in Italy and whatever. But, um, but uh, that was an accusation that was later leveled. But either way, uh, Begin is one of those who joined Anders' army, and then lo and behold, he's stationed in Palestine. He, he um, so... Uh, um, he he did he did not desert. He believed in legalities. He would not desert, and he eventually got a formal one-year discharge. Though he didn't re-enlist after the end of that year, but he um, but he was legally discharged, and this was uh, setting the stage for his uh, next uh, next part of his career, which ultimately led to his heading the Irgun. So we'll save the Irgun for the next part of Menachem Begin's uh, fascinating life. This is Yehuda Geber with the Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, speeches, lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.